This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. The 46th president of the United States, Joe Biden, is now in the White House. A new administration is underway. So just what can we expect? How does a new team take over the levers of our federal government? Andy Card served as chief of staff for the incoming George W. Bush administration 20 years ago. He also served as the Deputy Chief of Staff and Transportation Secretary in the George H.W. Bush administration. He has taken the lead in a number of presidential transitions. He knows how a White House operates. Andy Card is joining us from his home in New Hampshire. Thank you for being with us. And let me begin with what is happening right now in these early days of the new Biden administration. First of all, Steve, it's great to be with you, and I do celebrate the new president. I love our democracy where we can have these transitions, and I pray that it is very smooth. It's exciting for the people who are working at the White House. They're, they're kind of on the job for the first time, and it's unbelievably exciting, and they don't want to leave their job. And part of the responsibility of Ron Klain, the chief of staff, is to make sure people actually do go home at the end of the workday and spend some time with their families. And that's an, an evergreen challenge for a chief of staff. It's so exciting to work at the White House, you can be completely consumed by it and forget that you also have a family and you have to have some time for rest and re- relaxation, and you've got to be able to go home. Do your job. But go home and spend some time with your family because that's how you recharge your batteries. Don't get burnt out. But Ron is coming into the job with a plan. He probably, I know he has a 100-day plan. And yes, the president will want to accomplish as much as he can in those 100 days. And they'll have a pretty good sense of what it should be. But Ron also has to have peripheral vision, not just the tunnel vision of that plan. He's got to have peripheral vision to make sure that he knows what's going on in the country, what's going on in Washington, D.C., what's going on around the world, so that he can adjust and make sure the president's priorities are consistent with the obligations of the job that day. It's not planning for tomorrow necessarily, but that day you've got to be up to the task. And there are many as Mac McLeod used to say, UFOs, unforeseen occurrences that interrupt the plan that you had for the first 100 days or the second 200 days, and you've got to be prepared to meet those UFOs when they come at you. You have talked to Ron Klain over the last couple of weeks. Can you share with us what you told him, what your advice as the new White House Chief of Staff? I, first of all, I told him I want to be supportive of him and help him do his job. And no, I will not be calling him all the time to tell him how to do his job. If he wants him, if he wants my advice and counsel, I'd gladly give it to him. The second thing is, I said, celebrate what you're doing. Remember, they can never take yesterday away from you. So come to work celebrating what you did yesterday and all excited about today. Uh, and if tomorrow doesn't come because you serve at the pleasure of the president, still celebrate what happened yesterday. I actually told him to pay attention uh, to decisions that are being made by the president. You don't want the president making just government decisions. The president should be making presidential decisions, not every government decision. He will be blamed for every government decision, but the president's precious time should be making presidential decisions and getting ready to make tough presidential decisions rather than making government decisions. Ron, it's your job to make sure people who are making government decisions are making them the right way. As you know, your office location inside the West Wing or across the street at the old executive office building speaks volumes in terms of the power of those White House staffers. Why is that so important in Washington? 
not as important as the myth, but people do want to have proximity to the president. They believe the closer your office is to the president, the more important you must be. The four corners of the West Wing of the White House, you have the Oval Office, the Chief of Staff's Office, the National Security Advisor's Office, and then you have the Press Secretary's Office. Those are the four corners of that building. And the vice president's office is between the chief of staff's office and the national security advisor office. Yes, people want to be in close proximity to the president. They sometimes do the best job when they're not right next door to the president's office. And so it's the chief of staff's job to make sure that time is respected. And I had this rule. You can you're appointed by the president. You're a commissioned officer and your title is assistant to the president or deputy assistant to the president or special assistant to the president. You're appointed by the president and you can see the president any time you need to. You better not see the president any time you want to, because if you're servicing your own want, you're denying the president the time that he should have to do his job as president. So I used to say, I know that you're going to want to go see the president a lot, I'm going to ask you, don't go to see the president without either checking with me or inviting me to be there when you're there talking to the president or immediately after you did. Because I want to make sure that you needed to see the president and give him something that he really needed to have. I'm guaranteed you're going to have this desire to see the president and sometimes your want will be bigger than the need and you'll pretend that the need is bigger than the want and i'll scratch at your veneer and find beneath that thin veneer of need is a giant want and you better not go see the president just because you want to is that a lesson for a successful chief of staff and are there pitfalls for those who have preceded you that failed on that front as chief of staff oh there there are many i'm sure i failed it at many times but no it's it's critically important that the chief of staff Help the president find the discipline not to waste time, because time is the one thing nobody can get back at the White House. You, can't, you cannot get more time. The clock is always ticking, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it's the chief of staff job to make sure the president is never wasting his time, although the president uh, should have time and the chief of staff should be responsible for this, making sure the president has time to eat, sleep, and be merry, and that the chief of staff pays attention to the president's physical health, mental health, emotional health, and yes, even spiritual health. So the president should be able to get some of the things he wants. It shouldn't be all needs with him. But the rest of the staff, please don't intrude on the president's time just to service your own ego. But as I recall in past conversations, for you personally, your day began very early. George W. Bush especially was an early riser and it ended quite late at night. So walk us through your day. Sure. Well, I, I was fortunate. I worked in the White House under Reagan, Bush, and Bush. And when I was with Ronald Reagan, my children were young, and I was a special assistant to the president. And when I, under George H.W. Bush, I was a deputy chief of staff. My children were kind of teenagers and just starting college. And when I was chief of staff, my children were all grown. So I was blessed that I didn't have to rush home. But my day as a chief of staff would use, I get up at 4.08 in the morning, Philippians 4.08. My wife is a minister, so she had me up early every day, optimistically. I'd try to get to the office between 4.35 o'clock. The president used to come in pretty promptly at uh, 7 o'clock in the morning. After 9-11, he started coming in at 6.45. And I would not go home generally until the president had gone to bed. How did you keep up that pace? I have a fabulous wife, 
And uh, I was also very disciplined. I would take work home, but I tried not to work at home. I took work home that I might need to have if somebody called me, but I really, I tried to come home and relax. But I was very blessed, and I've always been someone who gets up early in the morning. I delivered newspapers starting in the sixth grade and all the way through high school and college, so I was used to getting up very early in the morning, and kind of a, I've been a morning person. I was glad I wasn't working for President Clinton because he was a nighttime person, and my, my clock was not the same as Bill Clinton's clock would have been. You saw transitions from Reagan to George H.W. Bush, from George H.W. Bush to Bill Clinton, and then, of course, from Bill Clinton to George W. Bush. What are some of the lessons? What makes a successful transition? And put that into context in terms of what we've seen over the last two and a half months from President Donald Trump to President Joe Biden. Well, it's important for the the public to understand the president has the right to staff the White House the way the president wants to. So he's got more flexibility for staffing that institution than, he, than the rest of the executive branch of government. Nobody on the White House staff is subject to Senate confirmation. So the president can say, I want you to work for me. And it's a big deal when you get appointed by the president. You get this fancy document, calligraphy, that says United States of America. Your name is calligraphied beautifully. The state you're from, the job that you have. And then it says, in spectacular writing, you serve at the pleasure of the president for the time being. It's redundant in its insecurity uh, because your job there is not to try to please the president. You just serve at the president's pleasure. And when the time being arrives and he doesn't want you around anymore, you're gone. So I would tell everyone, come to work every day celebrating that you're here. Don't worry about tomorrow. Celebrate yesterday, be fully present today, and if the pleasure of the president disappears, I'll be talking to you. Or if the time arrives and you have to go, write your letter of resignation so that your children and grandchildren will be very proud of what you did working for the president. But it's really, I came to work celebrating every day I showed up, not knowing if I would have another day. And so I was fully present every day. There is a new book out by Peter Baker and Susan Glasser on James Baker, who served as White House Chief of Staff, as you know, during the Reagan administration in the first term, and was replaced by Don Regan, who made some big mistakes as Chief of Staff. As you look back at that time period, what are the mistakes, what are the lessons for Ron Klain and others who serve in this administration? Well, I was actually working at the White House when Jim Baker was part of the Troika, Baker, me, Stever, and then chief of staff all alone. And then when Don Regan came in as chief of staff, and I actually left the White House staff the same day that Don Regan left as chief of staff. And I remember the mistake that he made. He got crosswise with the first lady. And that is, you've got to be sensitive if you're chief of staff to the the, the the way the president arrives every day is usually a function of how well did he do overnight and how was his morning with his wife. And so, yes, uh, Don Regan got crosswise with the first lady and the, the president lost the pleasure of having Don Regan as chief of staff. And it was very disruptive. I served under every chief of staff scenario uh, starting with the Troika, Baker Meese Deaver, Jim Baker all alone, Don Regan, Howard Baker, Ken Duberstein. Then we changed presidents, John Sununu. Then it was Sam Skinner. 
And then Jim Baker came back again as chief of staff to, to George H.W. Bush the last year of his presidency. So I got to witness all of those experiences working under chief of staff that really helped me do my job. And I conveyed that to uh, every successor that I had, Republican or Democrat, that, yes, every chief of staff does the job differently. You will learn something from all of them. Some of it is things that you want to do. Some of it is things you don't want to do. Don Regan made a big mistake and got crosswise with the first lady. Of course, a defining moment in the George W. Bush administration, and you were there in Florida on September the 11th, 2001. But prior to that, can you give us a sense of the flow of information and how things worked in the early months of the Bush administration so our listeners can get a sense of what perhaps is happening in these early months of the Biden administration? Well, first of all, you come into office with great discipline because the team has been working during the transition, even during a short transition, working to to kind of outline a map of what needs to be done, a calendar of when it will happen for the first 100 days. And so Ron Klain, the new chief of staff, I'm sure, has been part of that effort to discuss, discuss what the first 100 days obligations they think will be and how they're going to accomplish them. The first thing is get their cabinet members appointed, and they'll be doing that. Yes, they're already working on executive orders, and they'll make those changes. But they have a cadence that they will work through, and it's it's very disciplined. I was fortunate. Josh Bolton was the deputy chief of staff for, for policy. Joe Hagan was deputy chief of staff for operations. They had both worked in the White House before. I had worked with them. They were very good at what they're doing. Ron Klain has also surrounded himself with a number of staffers that understand what the burdens of the White House are and how the job should be done. But that's the critical thing. The most important position that the public doesn't really understand is a position called staff secretary. Doesn't sound like a very glorious title, but is one of the most important positions in the West Wing of the White House and to the president, because that is the office where every single piece of paper that goes into the Oval Office or comes out of the Oval Office goes through. And the head of that office is in charge of making sure the documents are never destroyed, they're kept. They're also responsible for making sure nobody is taking advantage of a paper document to get the president's attention without people that should know about it being involved. So they kind of say, hey, I've got a document here that's addressed to the president. Should I send it in? And they would come to the chief of staff and say, this is it. And I said, well, you better check with the National Security Advisor or check with the policy, domestic policy office. So it's really a policeman's responsibility for paperwork, but it's also a legal responsibility to protect the documents and kind of a policy security blanket, making sure that people don't end run the system to have the president get advice that may be one-sided and not subject to the careful consideration that every decision the president is invited to make should be made in a climate of real responsibility. Understanding the consequences of policy making is critically important in the White House. So yes, you have high expectations. You generally have an expectation of this should be done and I want it done. 
but you have to also have the discipline to find out how will it be done, who will implement it, how will you discover whether or not it's living up to expectations, what do you have to do to make sure the process is appropriate and inclusive rather than exclusive. And that's going on, I suspect, right now in the Biden White House. They have all these ideas of policy, and I'm sure they're being challenged to say, How will it be implemented? Who will be responsible for implementing it? How will we know if it's working? And when will we know whether or not it's living up to expectations? It sounds almost overwhelming. You should think of it as a a great responsibility, but it's not overwhelming if you have confidence in the people that you are working with. And if, if one person is trying to do all of the work to help the president do his job, the president is not being well served. It takes a real team, and it's the chief of staff's job to lead that team. And so uh, it's best when a president empowers a chief of staff to really be the leader of the team, getting the president ready to make the decisions. And, and part of that getting the president ready to make decisions is also making sure people outside of the White House are being trained on how the policy that is being discussed should be implemented. And people tend to forget the White House doesn't really get to implement any policy. Other people in government have to implement the policy that the president announces. And so part of Ron Klain's job is to make sure the cabinet is well engaged in understanding why the president is making a policy decision, what the expectations are, and how it will be implemented so that they can implement it to live up to the president's very high expectations. Let me remind our listeners, we are talking with Andy Card. He served in three Republican administrations, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and George W. Bush. He also served as the president of Franklin Pierce University. He is joining us from his home in New Hampshire. Very quickly, I want to ask you about two other positions inside the Oval Office that uh, a lot of people may not know about. One is the director of Oval Office operations, and the other is the personal aide to the president, sometimes called the body man. Well, the body man is, or, or woman, and I think most of them have been men. I can't think of one who's been a woman, but um, the body man is kind of the one who will understand the president's mood best other than the president's spouse. And the, the body man is there to literally be the aide closest to the president to make sure he has uh, a mask to put on in this COVID climate or a way to wash his hands or time to go to the bathroom or a pencil, a piece of paper, or understand who's coming in the door. The director of Oval Office Operations, Linda Gambatisa, ran that for the early days of George, President George W. Bush. They really managed the people right around the president who, are, who is coming into the office, who is in the outer office, when do they go into the office, who's been in the Oval Office, are they prepared? Is, uh, do they need to be there? Uh, is the president getting the support that he needs structurally? Is he is he meeting with the right people at the right time in the day? So that job is really an, one that organizes the president's time and the people who are immediate in immediate proximity to the president. And it's critically important. But that person has to keep their mouth shut. Uh, be very ethical, have the courage to 
ask for help if they don't know what they should be doing and really give a, a level of comfort to people who are working immediately for the president that they can do the job that they're asked to do. As we try to get a sense of what the early days of a new administration look and feel like, here is President Barack Obama, his very first public speech after he was inaugurated in January of 2009. However long we are keepers of the public trust, we should never forget that we are here as public servants, and public service is a privilege. It's not about advantaging yourself. It's not about advancing your friends or your corporate clients. It's not about advancing an ideological agenda or the special interests of any organization. Public service is simply and absolutely about advancing the interests of Americans. Andy Card, as you hear that from President Barack Obama, what goes through your mind? It is so right. I used to tell incoming staffers that the president had appointed, uh, your ethics is even more important than your job. And your personal ethics, I guarantee, are greater than any law or regulation. Don't violate your own conscience. If you've ever done something that you feel guilty about, tell somebody else about it. If you, you, you've got to stay ethical and you've got a higher calling, you are working for the president of the United States and for the American people. And ethics is critically important. I was so glad to hear what President Obama said. I had not heard that speech. So I remember when president, most presidents meet with the senior executive service, the, the top career public servants soon after, they, after the president becomes president. And I remember with... President George H.W. Bush and President George W. Bush, those that happened very early in the administration. And it was such a privilege to have the president speak to the career public servants that were gathered. I think they were over in the Daughters of the American Revolution Hall and just called them to the noble public service that they signed up to do. And so it was wonderful to see ethics so grounded in everything that was done for those presidents that I served. You, of course, have been close to the Bush family for many years. Here's what President George W. Bush said during his inaugural address, January 20th, 2001. We must live up to the calling we share. Civility is not a tactic or a sentiment. It is the determined choice of trust over cynicism, of community over chaos. And this commitment, if we keep it, is a way to shared accomplishment. America at its best is also courageous. Our national courage has been clear in times of depression and war when defeating common dangers defined our common good. Now we must choose if the example of our fathers and mothers will inspire us or condemn us. That from George W. Bush during his inaugural address. And Andy Card, you had a front row seat to a moment in history on that day George W. Bush referring to his father, George H.W. Bush, one of only two instances in American history where we had a father and then a son in the White House. Well, it was a very emotional experience for me. Uh, the inaugural parade was almost to the, its end, and President George W. Bush was in the reviewing stand watching the parade, and I remember people coming up to him saying, 
it's cold. Would you like to come in and get hot chocolate or some coffee or warm up? And he said, no, everybody who is marching in this parade is paying respect to the president. The president is going to pay respect to them. I am staying until everyone marches by. So he stayed there waving to people as a lot of other people were getting up out of the stands and leaving. And someone came and tapped me on the shoulder, and it was someone from the General Services Administration who was responsible for getting the West Wing ready for the new president. And he, he said, Mr. Card, would you like to come over and see uh, the Oval Office if it's ready for the new president? And, wow, that was a wonderful invitation. I said, absolutely. My wife and I left the reviewing stand, and we walked over to the West Wing of the White House, went in, went through the Roosevelt Room, and there the door to the Oval Office was opened up, and I could see workmen inside cleaning up, dusting things, putting the secure phone into the desk. And I walked in, and it was just glorious. And the workmen finished their work, and it was cold and kind of gloomy outside, but the Oval Office was bright and warm and inviting, and it was just spectacular. And I was standing there looking at the resolute desk, and I heard footsteps by the colonnade. And sure enough, a Secret Service agent comes, opens the door to the Oval Office, and in walks the new president. And I am standing beside the grandfather's clock. And he doesn't acknowledge me, but he, remember, he looks up at the ceiling and sees the seal of the president of the United States, and he walks to the middle of the room, and he's standing on the rug, and right as he's, he's standing right on the seal of the president of the United States, and then he looks at the resolute desk, and there carved into the door on the front of that resolute desk is the seal of the president of the United States. He doesn't say anything. He goes around behind the desk, sits down in his chair, He's kind of sliding his chair up to the desk when we hear footsteps coming up the colonnade. The door opens into the Oval Office, and a gentleman says, Mr. President. And the president looks up and says, Mr. President. It was his dad. The president gets up from the desk. He walks to the middle of the Oval Office. President George H.W. Bush walks to the middle is standing on top of the seal of the President of the United States, under the seal of the President of the United States, in front of the seal of the President of the United States. They both have tears in their eyes, and they had tremendous mutual respect for the office of the presidency and for each other. It was an unbelievably moving experience for me to witness, and to this day, I can't help but think of the wonderful respect that they had for the Oval Office and for each other, and I would point out that George H.W. Bush really never tried to influence his son as president. He didn't see it as his job to do that, but he was always there as a dad. That moment 20 years ago this month with Andy Card, who at the time was the incoming White House chief of staff, as we discuss the presidential transition process and what's happening at the start of this new Biden administration, you mentioned George H.W. Bush in terms of the party politics of the time and what we're seeing today. This is January 20th, 1989, during his inaugural address, making reference to then House Speaker Jim Wright, Democrat from Texas, and to the Senate Democratic leader, George Mitchell of Maine. To my friends, and yes, I do mean friends, in the loyal opposition, and yes, I mean loyal, I put out my hand, I'm putting out my hand to you, Mr. Speaker, 
I'm putting out my hand to you, Mr. Majority Leader, for this is the thing. This is the age of the offered hand, and we can't turn back clocks, and I don't want to. But when our fathers were young, Mr. Speaker, our differences ended at the water's edge. And we don't wish to turn back time. But when our mothers were young, Mr. Majority Leader, the Congress and the executive were capable of working together to produce a budget on which this nation could live. Let us negotiate soon and hard, but in the end, let us produce. The American people await action. They didn't send us here to bicker. They ask us to rise above the merely partisan. That with George H.W. Bush, president, his inaugural address in 1989. As you look at the politics today, Andy Card, are there lessons from that period that can be applied today in 2021? I think there are lessons, and I think President Biden is appropriately well-grounded to heed the lessons. He respects the institutions of our democracy. And George H.W. Bush had tremendous respect for the institutions of our democracy. And Joe Biden, President Biden, respects the institution of the Senate. And it's going to be one of the most difficult challenges to work with that institution. But I think he'll be able to do it because of the mutual respect that he and the minority leader in the Senate have. So I'm, I'm optimistic that we will demonstrate once again to the world that our democracy is the shining example. And it's been tarnished over the last four years, and it's time for us to polish it. I hope everybody in Washington, D.C. acknowledge the, the challenge to polish that democracy. They work to do it. And I hope we, the people, remember, the most important word in the Constitution is the very first word. We. It's our government. We should all be working to polish that democracy that the world celebrates and we want the world to be able to say we want to be like the united states and have a government that's ours and as you know we've talked to president donald trump he has not reached out to his predecessors for advice or counsel do you think joe biden can count on george w bush of course he worked with barack obama and bill clinton to get that advice when needed absolutely and i have every reason to believe that um Former presidents will take the call and be there, but they will not try to meddle in what the current president is trying to decide to do. But, yes, I think they'll take the call, offer candid advice, and there's not a doubt in my mind that uh, they will celebrate the success of our democracy. You know, the the great tradition that George H.W. Bush, I think, started of leaving a letter for the successor When George H.W. Bush left office, he was leaving office after a one-term presidency, and he was very disappointed and depressed that he didn't win a second term. But he wrote a letter that is a remarkable letter to his successor, Bill Clinton, and he basically said, I'm rooting for you to succeed, and I want to do everything I can to help you. And that's just a wonderful way to celebrate our democracy. The world is watching We didn't like what we saw on January 6th. That was so bad. And my my tears flowed that day when I saw what was happening. And now it's time for us to rally together. Yes, disagreements will be loud and boisterous and sometimes cause us to have high emotions. But understand that disagreements are the oxygen of a democracy. 
But we've got to make sure the democracy is such that everyone has a role in it. And I think President Biden understands that. He wants to be president of all the people, and I want to help him succeed. On that note, Andy Card, a veteran of three Republican administrations, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and George W. Bush. He is joining us from his home in New Hampshire. We thank you for being with us. Thank you, Steve Scully. It's a joy to be with you. And a reminder, C-SPAN's The Weekly is available wherever you get your favorite podcast. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.